Good morning. If you have a Bible or device, uh, could you turn with me to John chapter 2? We're going to be reading out of verse 13 through 25. And it is Jesus cleansing the temples. I'm going to read it out of ESV, and then we can pray. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out of the, coin, the coins out of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said to him, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When he saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in a man. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your text, and I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the example that he sets for us in this moment as he goes into the temple and rewrites what needs to be done in that moment. I ask that he would take hold of my life, and the Holy Spirit would take hold of my life and cleanse my temple as I come out and I speak your words, God. Just be with me as I relay this message, and I be with all the hearts of people who listen to it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So when I was reading the story and preparing for this this week, I could not help but think of my father. Now, if you were raised in a home where you had a father present, a lot of young men will look at their fathers as the example that's being set for them. I am the same way. My father was a lion of a leader. He was a strong man that I, was, that I needed to look up to. And he set a great example for me. Now, I hide nothing from the fact that I was raised in a non-Christian home. My parents were not believers in Jesus. My father came to Christ later on in his life after we had already been, my brother and I, introduced and became followers of Christ. But my dad had been raised in a moralistic home, and he had traditions that allowed him to raise us with a moralistic worldview. He did the best he could with what he had. But one of the things that was unique to my father, at least unique to my father in the way that like my fellow peers were surrounded by, is that he raised at least my brother and I to never be a victim. That was his phrase that he would tell me all the time. Never be a victim. Don't allow yourself to be put in a position to be a victim. This was his calling. He told us this all the time. Now, it seems a little harsh. It seems a little bit... uh, kind of non-characteristic of what a father should teach his sons, but he knew the adversary was waiting for us. He knew that something could happen to us and we needed to be prepared. So he encouraged things like martial arts. He encouraged things like learning how to use a weapon, how to use a gun, how to use those things. He prepared me for those battles. He prepared me physically and mentally because he thought something was coming. But one thing he told me, one thing he specifically he told me is that If you use this in a way that hurts others, or if you use this in a way that you don't protect others, you'll answer to me. 
And I did not want to answer to my father if that ever became true. See, if you learn the story about my father outright, without knowing any context behind it, he seems a little hard. He seems a little abrasive. But when you understand what my father walked through, his father was an alcoholic. His father abused him as he was young. My father left my, fa- my grandfather's home at 15, left his education, got a job, and set up a house where his siblings could come to be protected from my grandfather. Now, I don't want to discourage or look, you know, look down upon my grandfather's actions outright, but my grandfather, what we know now, is that he suffered from PTSD. He fought in World War II. He had some demons that he just didn't address. And I'm not excusing the behavior, but that was the context for which my father came from. And he would tell me, pick your battles. He would tell that to me, not just in a physical world, but in, as I got to be an adult and I got into the workforce, I tried to fight every battle. He'd be like, pick your battles. He preached that to me, pick your battles. Don't fight them all. Pick the important ones. Now, every family has a family historian, and my cousin is that family historian for us. And since we've gotten into Ancestry.com, you can look up a lot of your family's history. The interesting thing about the story and my father is my cousin was able to uncover a story about my father when he, uh, through the Clearfield paper in Pennsylvania, where he got into a fight with not one, but six Pennsylvania police officers. And of course, he sent that article to me. I was an adult at the time I got this article. So I know in working in law enforcement previously that if you have six, the attention of six police officers, you're a problem. You become a major problem. So of course I ran over to go talk to my dad and confront him on this. And I said, hey, you spent my whole childhood telling me that I had to pick my battles. What happened here? And he says, oh, I did pick my battle. I chose the wrong one. (laughs) So when you read this story about Jesus... You have to ask yourself, what is it about this moment, this moment in time that Jesus says, I'm picking this battle. I'm choosing to stand here. This is the hill I'm going to die on it. What is it about this moment in time, in history, that Jesus makes a stand here? I think too often with Jesus, and it's not, I'm not saying this is wrong, but with Jesus we have this tendency to say, he's God. He's God incarnate. This is all true. But then we don't investigate as to what his actions are and what he does. We kind of give him a pass in this moment. But this is recorded in all four of the Gospels. All four of them. John specifically says at the end of the Gospel that I am giving you signs and signals to show you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you would believe. John says, I could have left some things out. I didn't put it all in there, but this story makes it. Why? Why does this story make it? Now, as Christians, we love this story. We absolutely love this story. In fact, it's become kind of a joke in our household. You know, it's like, how mad are you? Are you, tape, are you flipping tables mad? Yep, I'm flipping tables mad. It's kind of become a joke in our household. Sometimes my wife and her venting, like if she's venting to me, she doesn't even let me get the question out. She's like, I'm flipping tables mad. As Christians, we love this story because it shows Jesus taking a stand for what we believe to be an injustice. We love this story. And it's captured in all four of them. So you have to stop. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why is it uncovered in all four Gospels? John has it placed at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke have it at the end. So he may have done this twice. If you read John chronologically, this may have happened twice. So what 
is it about that story? To understand that, going back to the story of my father, you have to understand it in the context for which it's given. And Jesus actually gives you statements that makes, it, that makes you understand why he did what he did and why this was so important to him. So you have to get into the context. So the first thing you have to understand is the when. The text says it. It says the feast of the Passover was at hand. Passover was at hand. Jesus was traveling to the temple to honor the Passover. I don't know if Jesus traveled to the temple every day of his life. We have one recording in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus goes to the temple as a small boy, but I have no idea if he went there every single year that they did the Passover. But this was tradition for them. This is the when, the Passover feast. The Passover was at hand. Jesus is being obedient to Exodus 23, 14 through 17 that says to obey the Passover. Now, if we understand what the Passover is, he is celebrating when the Israelites became free from bondage of Egypt. Now, in that story, it's the last of the ten plagues. The angel of the Lord passes over the nation of Israel because they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. There to pass over. God passes over. So the other thing we need to understand is that they are currently, the nation of Israel, under the occupation of the Roman government. So Jesus is going down as a rabbi to celebrate the Passover. Now, if you think about it this way, if you think about Passover and you think about temple and you don't understand, we get a lot of information from a historian called Josephus. He writes about how many people would have been present in Jerusalem for this moment. So when they talk about the census that they did on the sacrifices, the priests found the number of the sacrifices 256,500. So at least 256,500 people are going to be in the small town of Jerusalem at the time Jesus is there. So when Jesus does this scene, when Jesus clears the temple in Passover, it's not just amongst friends. He's making a point and he's making it loudly so people can see this. So what makes this a miracle? What makes this a sign? What makes this so important? I could recreate this right now. We live in Wisconsin, bring in some oxen, put them back there, grab the money changers. I could recreate this right now. That doesn't seem like a sign or a miracle to me. What is it about this thing that makes it so important? Think about it this way. If I were to grab some rope and I were to create a whip right here, and I were to start making a ruckus and start clearing some of this stuff. With my training and experience, I can reasonably infer that some of you could probably overwhelm me if I became a problem. And who else would we call? We'd call law enforcement, right? We'd call police. We'd call people to come stop me. How is Jesus able to clear an entire temple with at least 256,000 people with a whip? What authority does he possess to do that? That's the miracle. And it also, the text doesn't say that anybody got hurt or got like mowed over either. That's the important part too. And working in law enforcement, I had to direct traffic sometimes. You know, you'd stand on the crash scene and you do this number. And inevitably somebody would drive up and be like, try to drive past me. And I'm like, where are you going? You can't, you know, you can't do that. And they'd be like, well, I live there. I get it, but you got to go around. Like I could, I couldn't direct traffic. How is Jesus able to clear an entire temple during Passover? How is he able to do this? Because he comes with authority. In that moment, what he did was so authoritative that no 
Jew stopped him and no Roman official? What kind of authority does he possess in our lives? Nobody stops him. If I recreated that here, it wouldn't take very many of you to overpower me. So he does this during Passover in front of everyone, in front of everybody he can find. Now, during Passover, it's important to know also, and we'll get into this a little bit later, that the reason that they come is to bring a sacrifice to the temple. They're bringing a sacrifice to the temple, and they're going to sacrifice the blood on the altar for the sins of their family. That's what they're doing. That's why they go to the temple. The second thing that we have to focus on, and I'm going to hit this most, this is going to be where I spend most of my time, is the where is this? It's at the temple. Now, thankfully, with some writings from Josephus and our text, now the Josephus isn't canon, he's historical, so you can take it with a grain of salt, but he gives us a good look into what the actual temple was like. So this is called Herod's temple. The reason it's called Herod's temple is because it's been rebuilt by King Herod. Yes, the same King Herod that murdered Jewish children. That same King Herod. When they say in the text that 46 years it took to build the temple, they're not talking about it originally. They're talking about the rebuilding of the temple. This temple has been built and rebuilt multiple times. It was a passion project for King David. He wanted to provide God with a house. King Solomon dedicates this this temple, the original one, in all its splendor. But King Solomon says specifically, I'm providing you a house that I know cannot contain you. No God of heaven can be contained in a house. It was symbolic. But King Solomon also said that this is going to be a place where not just Jews will go, where we will all go. I'm not building a house for the Israelites. I'm building a house, symbolic house, for the entire world. This was going to be a place where Jews and Gentiles could gather. That was the original intent. It's found in 1 Kings. So this temple was originally built by King Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, you can read him in Daniel, comes and destroys this temple. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, we learn about the rebuilding of this temple. But the rebuilding of this temple is not impressive. It's not the same as Solomon's temple. It's not doesn't have quite the splendor that it has. But what we learn about Herod, aside from the fact that he's the murderer of Hebrew children, is that he's very wealthy. And that he's been tasked with almost an impossible job. It is to be a client king for the Roman government. His job is to rule over the Israelites in a place that has a high probability of rebellion. There is messianic rebellion all over the place. And so Herod has to keep that in check. Well, Herod, despite the fact that he's got some negative issues, obvious ones, is that he's smart enough to understand something. His mother is Jewish. He's half Jewish. So his idea is to let's rebuild this temple as a policy. Because if I rebuild this temple for the Jews, they're all going to like me. They, didn't, they don't. But that's his, that's his thought by it. That's his process. So he rebuilds this magnificent temple. And this is where the scene of Jesus's, uh, this scene takes place. This is one of Herod's also buildings. It's the Fortress Masada. It's still in Israel today. So a lot of Herod's buildings and architecture is still up. It's still around today. Herod's a great builder. 
This is a mock-up of what the temple would have looked like. And I'll be using it a lot to explain the importance of those specific spots inside the temple. So the temple, the idea of the temple is that it's a house for God. It's a house for God and it's where earth and heaven meet. This takes place after Eden. Eden is a place where God and people commune. It eventually leads to a tabernacle where God and his people commune. It eventually leads to this temple where God and his people commune. This was important to the Jewish life. Jesus is there for a specific purpose. He's at Passover making a scene in here. The other thing to understand about this place is it's got specific structures and levels. This big outside court that you see is called the Court of the Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile who wanted to show up and give homage to the God of Israel, this is where you went, this big court area. That's all the farther you could go. That was your spot. That was your space. Inside of that is the court of the Israelites. If you were Israeli, any kind, male, female, you could go into this inner court, the court of the Israelis, the court of the Israelite. There was a court of the men that men could go into. So at some point, you're getting closer and closer to this main big building, this main tall structure, which is called the Naus, or the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go in. So when Jesus comes into this place, comes into the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, he finds this activity going on. He finds money changers. He finds people selling oxen. He sells, finds people selling lambs. And this is where this probably occurred in the house of the Gentiles. You see the portico over here on the one side. This is where Jesus did a lot of his teachings in the temple, they think. And then on the far side, overlooking the temple, is the fortress Antonio, which is where the Roman legion would have been stationed overlooking the temple for a reason. Because people were going to cause a disturbance in the temple. They wanted the Roman legion right there. So Jesus does this under the nose of Rome. And nobody stops him. Nobody comes in to intervene. Nobody stops him. He does this for a reason in this location. So let's talk about the money changers. And let's talk about the people selling the oxen. So here's what would happen in that culture. If you're coming to Passover, you're wanting to bring your sacrifice. You're going to bring your offering to give to God on Passover. Well... You're going to have that offering inspected by a police, or a priest, not police, a priest. And that priest is going to tell you whether or not your offering is good enough. So you've traveled all this way with your family. You probably brought the only offering you can afford, and it's going to be inspected by a religious leader. Well, that religious leader is more than likely going to tell you, and history shows this, that your offering is not good enough. What you brought is not perfect. It doesn't meet the standards. It's not sufficient. But that's okay. That's okay. Because in the court of the Gentiles, I have an offering for you. You can purchase. I'm sure at not an elevated price. I have something for you to purchase you can use. I have something that is good enough. What you brought does not suffice. But I have for you what you need. So there fraud of what's going on in the court of the Gentiles. Now, why are the money changers there specifically? This is the what. Why are the money changers there? 
Well, the Roman world had a bunch of Roman money. Roman coins of all different varieties, right? But if you came to the temple, we've learned that that money is not good here. You had to have a Hebrew shekel. So if I have my Hebrew shekel to use as the temple tax or to pay for my offering, I have to exchange it from whatever Roman coin was, mostly a denarii, for that shekel. I have to make an exchange. Do you think there was some interest in that exchange? Do we suppose that there were some markups in that exchange rate? So to buy the offering that I need, I have to exchange my money for different money, and I'm getting marked up every time. There's fraud all throughout this process. Fraud throughout. And Jesus is infuriated. Jesus is upset for two reasons. The first reason he says, you've defamed my father's house. You've turned it into a house of trade. How dare you? You are supposed to be the religious elite. You're supposed to be in charge of the temple. You've been in charge with this. And now we've committed fraud. He's enraged by this. But if we look at Mark, Mark eleven seventeen, we see that Jesus specifically says, Is it not written, My father's house shall be called a house for prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. So one thing that we also understand about Jesus, when he speaks, a lot of times he's quoting the Old Testament. A lot of times he's referencing the Old Testament code. He's referencing what he knows. He's not just pulling up. He does sometimes, but a lot of times he's referencing his Old Testament. He's referencing the Old Testament. So this particular exchange, he's actually referencing this passage. Isaiah 56, 6 through 7. And he says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds, my, holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyfully in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer to all people. And therein lies the problem. The temple that is built, as Solomon said, is to be a house of prayer for all people. All people. And now in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where I or anybody else who's not Jewish can go is being overrun by trade and fraud. There is no place for somebody who is an outsider to go now. That's been taken up by space of fraud. Where am I to go? Where are we to go? There is all kinds of problems with this temple. All kinds of issues with it. Well, we know that the temple did not last forever. In 70 AD, it was destroyed. Jesus actually predicts it in Matthew that it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left. It gets destroyed again. It is sacked by a Roman general by the name of Titus, actually. By Titus. The Roman general besieges it and destroys it completely. So the question is, is if there's no longer a temple, 
If we no longer have a temple, how does this apply today? How do we understand it to apply right now? Well, if you read the biblical text, if you read about the temple, there's a theme here. It starts with Eden. God and his people communing together. It runs to the tabernacle. God and his people communing together. That is the temple. The temple, God and his people communing together. That is alive and well today. And I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians to show you what I mean. The Apostle Paul talks in 1 Corinthians, if you want to flip there, 3 verse 16. This is how it applies to each one of us. Paul is writing to a first century church in Corinth, and these are his words. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the idea of the temple is not destroyed. If we are followers of Christ, if we have accepted that call, if we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, we are that temple. We are God's representative on earth. He doesn't have to partner with us as humans, but he chooses to. He does it throughout history. We are that temple. This is why I struggled with this this week, in the last two weeks. Because when I go back and I read this story, I always associate myself with Jesus. I always associate myself with the person who is fighting for justice. I always associate, when I read David and Goliath, I associate myself as David. That's who I read into it. But when I went back and I really worked on it, and I really paid attention, and I really thought about it, and I really viewed it as the fact that I am God's temple through the Holy Spirit working through me, I had to face the fact, I had to reckon with the fact That sometimes I have been the priest. Sometimes in my life I have been a profane temple. Sometimes in my life I have pushed the outsider away. Sometimes in my life I struggled to be the witness that God wanted me to be. That's okay. That's okay. Because I follow a God and I follow a Savior who's perfectly capable of cleansing my temple. He did it in the first century and he will do it to me and I ask him daily to cleanse my temple. And he will do it for me. I've asked him to reveal in me the dark parts in me that have pushed others away. And he does it every time. As long as we are here, and I love what you said, as long as we are here, our goal should be to use what we are and use the Holy Spirit living in us to affect our world. Maybe we're not called to be an open-air preacher. Maybe we're not called to be an evangelist. Maybe we're not called to be a teacher at all. We all have gifts. We all have callings. God partners with us. To affect our world around us. If you invite him in, he will cleanse your temple. 
If you invite him in, he will make you the representative that he longs for you to be because he sees us as we're going to be. I have repented of the times that I've been a profane temple and I have repented of the times that I've pushed people away. And if I've ever done that to anybody here in the room, let me know. And I'll be more than happy to repent on that because as long as I live, I want to be the temple that brings others to God. I want to be the original version of that temple as Solomon said. I want to be that. If you invite Jesus in, he will cleanse your temple. If you're someone here who has not invited Jesus in, does not understand what the Holy Spirit is, or confused by any of this temple language that I've used today, come talk to me. I'll introduce you to the one who can cleanse your heart. Because that's what's important and that's what it's really about. Now, as the praise team comes, and Gene, I'll have you come play for a minute, I'm going to give an opportunity for us to pray. If you haven't invited Jesus in, I'll give you the opportunity to pray with me. And if, like me, there's been opportunity in times where we push people away and we've used our temple to profane God, I'll just ask, like me, for repentance. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we love you. And we are so appreciative that you are a God who does not need us, but uses us and partners with us. We may not understand why you use humanity as your temple or why you use us to be your representative on earth. But we thank you that you still trust us. I just pray for those who have never had the opportunity to trust in your son and to trust in Christ. I just ask that if there's anyone out there who has never followed Jesus, that they will seek out somebody that they trust and allow them to introduce them to the person who can cleanse your heart. God, you have done a work in a lot of lives and you've done a work in mine. And I just praise you and thank you that you've cleansed the darkness and you continue to do so. Father, we love you and we thank you. And if there's anyone in here who needs to reach out to you and say that maybe I haven't used my temple in the right way. Maybe I've pushed people aside. Maybe I haven't been about the gospel. Maybe I haven't been about Jesus, but have been about other things. I just ask that you would let them know that you are the God that's still cleansing temples. You're still the God for all nations. Father, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.